you see these big brands come in and, you know, when that happens, I think two things, number one, great new market activity, new productive capacity, new like kind of uh, concentrated spotlight on, on what this industry is. But the other question I ask, you know, is um, where does the money come from? Where does the money come from, from these old brands? And it's the, the, you know, is it a loan shark propping them up? Are they in debt and in huge liabilities? Who do they have to pay off? Who do they have to appease to? And that's really the stage we're at now. You have these wow. projects coming in and they're minting fashion NFTs, but that's not Web3 fashion. Um, Web3 fashion is the de complete rejection of Web2, decentralization of capital, tech, and governance. And if you're not doing those three things, then frankly, you're leaving value on the table because just like what we saw, you know, which projects and which companies won within the computing age, it's those that really understood the power of network effects within the internet. And, you know, a kind of good stage analogy, when you think about what is web one, well, it was personal network effects, web two, centralized hypergrowth network effects, and web three, it's uncensorable, personalized hypergrowth network effects. And that is incredible. And when you realize how you can actually leverage value-based network effects, which means removing choke points from every part of, you know, the fabric and medium that you're building in, that's where you create the most value. That's where you have this entire convexity and you get the big wins. And so that's the stage we're at now is, is setting DigitalX up to be a network effect, to enable network effects for designers, for buyers, collectors, wearers, everyone in the market. Welcome to Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. I'm excited today to have on the show Emma Jane McKinnon Lee from DigitalX. And uh, Emma and her team are doing some incredibly innovative things on NFTs in the fashion industry, but more importantly, how that can impact the entire blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystem. So Emma, welcome to the show. Why don't you get started by telling us about yourself, how you got into crypto, and then how you transitioned into crypto NFTs and the fashion industry. 
Sure. Yeah. So my background, it's a multitude of things, but when I finished school, I went into space engineering. I always loved um, math and physics and that intersection. And then around two years into that, I found out more about web. I'd always kind of been following it since like early 2016, late 2015. But then a few years later, when I was in like university and college, I came across it in a different way. It was actually through more of like the finance, hedge fund side. And when I started to realize what this social coordination technology was and how everything in human nature is built on coordination. And when you think about, think about it like that, you realize how that changes every single industry. It's a complete paradigm shift. And so really fell down that rabbit hole and decided to drop out of engineering school and then went into a hedge fund, which was a crypto native hedge fund. So it was trading on Ethereum and the Bitcoin markets and kind of kind of range of altcoins as well. But I went into that. And so I was based out of Australia and Dubai and I was focused on options trading, but this special type of options trading or like kind of trading segment, it's called black swan tail risk hedging. And wow. so a black swan event is kind of like these random events that happen, they're unpredictable. And there's big ones that they usually happen around every decade, decade or so, but again, um, completely unpredictable. The last one was probably last year with COVID when the entire markets went like belly up um, and everything was crashing. But Black Swan Terrorist Insurance is all about instead of trying to predict the market and place bets or day trade, swing trade, where you kind of get these small wins and losses. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the big wins and losses that count. And so Terrorist Hedging is setting up like options contracts or variant swaps, which are puts and calls that you place dynamically around the live market spot and you rebalance every day. And so when these huge um, asymmetric kind of market moves happen and you get this huge convexity up or down, um, doesn't matter. It's where that you're able to capture the entirety of um, that liquidity and then really have these big wins on the market. So that's really what I specialized in. And I was trained under Bruno Ixel, who uh, used to hedge the entirety of JP Morgan's balance sheets off out of the uh, CIO office. And so he pretty much saved them in a lot uh, from the, the global financial crisis and was trained under him, but was focusing on Ethereum and BTC options on Darabit. And then after I was kind of in that for a while, I mean, at that time, crypto was really focused on finance and DeFi was like the main industry. But I started exploring other areas and of course came across NFTs and, and was going more into that and then seeing the intersection of okay, how big the gaming market is becoming and how ownership and providence, not just in the physical world, but in the digital world is super important and what NFT sold for and that new mechanism. Saw the combination of that and fashion is really a focal point to that because when you think about combining the metaverse, combining then a social coordination technology like the blockchain, fashion is one of these industries that is fundamental to absolutely everything. So it just makes so much sense that this will be radically transformed by it as well. Wow. Okay. So I need to rewind here a second because there's, there's a lot to take in there. So do you miss space engineering? I don't miss the school and the structure because I feel like that's right. a lot of crap, but I, I, I do love the, the material itself. Okay. All right. So you do, I mean, do you still look at it and study it? Yeah. So you had this realization of the power of social coordination that the blockchain brings. First kind of explain to people what you mean by the social coordination of blockchain. Like how does blockchain empower that? And 
How does that impact everything we do? Sure. So what I would say is, I mean, it's not even the blockchain itself. It's more the idea of, well, how do you have decentralized networks and then actually coordinate through them? And this is really what, like the blockchain is a technology layer. Sure. It allows for, it's uh, the first implementation of a mechanism that actually allows you to execute that in an entirely decentralized way. And when you think about, okay, what is some of the, the core component? You have kind of three layers. You have decentralization of capital, governance, and technology. And these things are really important because if you can coordinate decentralization of these three areas and then not just be able to kind of um, coordinate from like a distribution point of view, but also the circulation around that, particularly of capital, that transforms so many things globally. Because if we look at what are some of the most important tools that we have right now, really basic examples, you take Facebook, you take Uber, you take Airbnb. At the end of the day, that is social coordination at its root. Airbnb, you know, coordination of people being able to find accommodation globally. Um, you know, Facebook, it's a communication coordination tool. And then you have Uber as well, transportation uh, coordination. And everything, civilizations, societies, governments is built on the ability to communicate and then coordinate. And the way that it has been for really the past seven decades, definitely past 70 years, I mean, the last transitional upheaval that we had was World War II. But in those past 70 years, it's all been very centralized. There's been choke points in the market. And in order to be able to coordinate across finance, across fashion, food production, you know, events and like cultural kind of events again or experiences that are going on it's, it's all been really controlled by these choke points in the market and so this is really why web 3 is so transformative this is the first time you can literally run civilizations and industries without the need for relying on these big empires that have exploited the control that is being given to them uh, was your head already working concerned about centralization prior to kind of getting into crypto and blockchain and, and, and heading down that rabbit hole? Was that something that you were already worried about or was it something that became more obvious to you as you kind of explored this world? Yeah, I mean, very good question. I would definitely say that, you know, it's, it's not something that is immediately obvious to anyone, especially when you're kind of just operating in normal society. You know, it's not like any of these big um, behemoths that I was saying, oh, hey, you guys should be worried that, you know, we have all this power because you kind of go along with it. Like, even if you think about Facebook, the amount of violating breaches that, you know, the actions they've taken in terms of just violating everyone's personal data and privacy. And they're just one example because it, there's the most publicity around that as well is crazy. And yet they get away with it. And when you're a user, you, you kind of go along with it too, because you think, well, the government is protecting me. You know, aren't they the good? But then when you start learning more about economical systems and, and economics itself, um, and that's really what kind of was the turning point for me was really understanding more was where does the money come from? How does right. money flow within society? That's more what opened up my, my eyes to it all because ultimately everything is downstream of economics. Any challenge, problem, barrier, it, you always just trace it back to what is the source of the wealth of the value? Where is the money coming from? And it usually adds a lot of the, you know, unbeknown questions. And so that was really the turning point for me. And that particularly became more salient when I was working at the hedge fund, because obviously that's, you know, live financial markets and you start diving deep into these topics in better trades, set up better, like fundamentals around what could be happening, you know, in, in global 
um, industries and that within a few weeks, months, days from now. And so that definitely was the big turning point. And then ever since then, you know, going more into Web3, it just becomes more and more obvious day by day how centralization is just not the answer. Yeah, look, I think we all, all of us that have kind of had the realization that we've had in this world kind of turn around at one point and say, I've just kind of been living in this cloud. You know, I teach, I don't anymore. When my children were younger in elementary school, I would do career day. And I was heavily into crypto at that point. And I would go and talk to them about how real money works, right? And I remember the looks on the kids' faces as I walked them through the Fed. And when the first time I would tell the child role-playing the bank that he had to print more money and they got an understanding of how the whole thing works. Their faces were just like, who created this insane system? Because I had them all role-playing and playing different aspects of the system. And I, I think it's incredible how easy it is for us to just be in this role and not see what's happening to us, you know? And that, that, that's actually almost more disturbing than the fact that there is this centralized control. The fact that we just kind of walk merrily along down the street, allowing other people to control really critical things that happen in our lives. So I can see how that was important for you. When you were at the hedge fund, were you writing code? Were you writing algorithms? Were you doing research? What kind of work were you doing? Sure. I mean, so the fund itself, it was moving more into like the algorithmic side because I had that background in like programming and engineering. Um, I was helping with kind of setting up a lot of those strategies. But the main focus of myself, like I can tell you, I'm not a day trader. Ask me to like, you know, buy and sell in a day or even swing trading over a few weeks. I will lose all your money. I can guarantee you that. It's just like not my thing. 90% of the people yes. try it though. So. Exactly. But yeah, so definitely, you know, that's not me. But what I am is someone that is able to look at kind of, okay, how systems work. And particularly, how do you actually capture convexity? How do you set up a structure that is independent of the outcomes? And this is really where a lot of the trading in that goes wrong. It's when people try and make predictions in the market because you cannot predict a market. Um, unless you literally have insider guaranteed information, there is no way to predict um, whether prices will go up and down. It's, it's really placing random bets and particularly with how detached the markets are from actual fundamentals. I mean, it's a complete casino economy. There is no way as well to really dictate, okay, fundamentals are going to play, a, a, you know, have a weighting in an outcome. And we're just seeing more and more of that, particularly within the traditional markets and in, you know, a lot of aspects of crypto too and the volatility there. And so the best way that you can look at that, instead of looking at, okay, well, how can I try and predict, will, will this be this, and this target and this technical analysis at this date, set up a structure where it doesn't matter where the market goes. It doesn't matter if tomorrow it goes to zero or tomorrow it goes to 100,000 or it stays the same. Set up a structure that allows for you to capture the convexity. Because at the end of the day, the small wins and losses, they really don't matter. What matters to your portfolio is the big wins and losses. How do you actually capture the big kind of trades that are coming in and where that huge liquidity is? Because that's or either going to slam you to the ground and make you completely bankrupt, or it's going to completely change how you're able to view and then position yourself for that next move. And so this is really what a variant swap does. And it's kind of the, the trading structure that I was trained in, and it's using options contracts. So puts and, sorry, puts and calls, and you set them up around the spot. So around like the live kind of price or whatever, maybe like 
token or data that you're trading in, you set it up around the live market price and it's kind of balancing. So being able to then capture convexity, if there is a significant move from that spot price, either if that's to like the upside or the downside, it doesn't matter. And each day, I mean, it's not a static strategy like a lot of people think or a passive strategy. It's very active. Each day you have to kind of put in new positions to then keep that like rebalancing and that alignment. But right. ultimately what it means is now when there is a black swan event and you have no idea to predict this, you have the mechanism and structure in place to be able to capture that huge convexity. And that's ultimately that I, what I was doing. And as I said, I, I was trained by only a few people in the world actually know how to really set up these structures. And, and one of them is um, like Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel, sorry, probably the most famous fund, Universa. They're set up in Miami, uh, in Florida. And so I was trained by Bruno Ixel, who was one of these other brilliant minds that was, you know, trading at, at JPM beforehand and balancing their, sorry, I'm hedging their balance sheets. And then through a series of events, uh, I met him and he came on part of the fund and yeah, he taught me how to do this. So did you enjoy the work? Look, so much of it, I, I absolutely loved, particularly being live in the markets, the pressure of it, you know, just like finger to the pulse in a sense, and just being able, as I said, to understand more of how does the world actually work and how is everything downstream economics? Like you said, cogs in a machine is how so many people live. You know, it's, it's very Kafkaesque and it's really scary when you think about it. And then it's like, you know, taking the red pill seriously of just how so many people think that money and value comes from it being minted somewhere and then powerful people distributed around the world. They really don't believe that it's actually something that is able to coordinate activity, contributions, governance, and then it can be created and destroyed. It's not set in the way that we actually grow up kind of thinking that it is it what like what it is. So in that way, I absolutely loved it. I'm glad it added that insight for you. What was that progression from hedge fund into this? And did you have kind of this germ of an idea that was coming to you from having examined all of this? And so you said, okay, I want to head down this path. Or was it just kind of circumstances dabbling and, and then you ended up? Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question in that. And the journey was really, I mean, although I love the finance side, and as I said, like kind of more of the knowledge around it, it was never being like a, a trader in a sense. And that was never anything that I really wanted to stick with. And, but at that time, I mean, a lot of the opportunities right. in Web3, they were centered around like finance, DeFi. And so it was around like mid 2019 or so, I mean, late 2019 that I started looking at what else is out there and what else do I really think is going to be just like that transitional upheaval, you know, by Web3 in a sense. And I started looking at a lot of areas and NFTs and gaming were ones that were really salient to me. And I started diving more into that rabbit hole and I, I didn't want to set up like kind of a, a gaming thing because I just thought, it's, it's not really me either. Um, I was looking more for like, what is a project of like transitioning an entire ecosystem, entire industry. And through like a series of things, I came across more of like fashion side and particularly digital fashion is like a really core to that when you think about the metaverse itself. But I came across fashion and it just clicked. It made so much sense because what is fashion? It's, it's this interface that we all interact with. It's the set of tools that we use. I mean, even you go back, thousands of years in history and fashion was an industry that, you know, 
really was was a part of every society. I mean, computation came from textile production. It's so fundamental to everything that we've set up in society. And so really seeing that and then looking at, okay, well, what parts of human nature never change? What are industries that are so essential? And especially as an interface for bridging more onboarding as well into Web3 and accessibility, it just clicked and it made sense. And so that's when I kind of just started to look more into it. And then it was August, 2020 last year where I decided, okay, I want to set up and take the leap and start Digital X. And then it was kind of like November, October of um, 2020 last year as well, when we, we went live. So the, the sense I got from the reasoning that you had for coming after fashion was this touches everyone. And so there, there are two possible motivations that could be mixed with that. The first is, is massive market. And the second is massive impact, right? If I can leverage into fashion, which touches can have an impact from the origination of the social coordination components and the decentralization desires that way. And also it's a really big financial market. When you think of this, is that, are, are those two paths that you're thinking of and saying, Hey, there are two opportunities here. There's opportunity for social change and there's opportunity for financial impact. I think, you know, definitely there, there are two core things because it's like, how do you change the world? Well, first of all, you need the capital to go out and change the world. And sure. so, yeah, as you said, combining like the financial impact with the like social impact as well. I mean, fashion is like very at the center of that. But I think it was also more of just the, the depth and breadth of the in, in industry, which a lot of people, when they think about fashion, they think, okay, it's just some like models running down, like, or strutting down a, a catwalk and, you know, wearing a, a cool dress or something like this, or a really weird dress sometimes at the, the runway events. But when I look at fashion, I really look at it as it's this interface, this malleable, programmable interface particularly when you're mixing digital and physical, where the opportunities to embed like finance, the opportunities to embed social impact, the opportunities to embed governance tooling, gaming tooling, all of these different things, it allows you to do that. And there's not many other industries where you can do that and also be at that interface kind of intersection. And so that was really more of the determination there as well, was realizing so much that could be done with it. So when you created Digital X, what, what was the, what was in your mind? What was the mission? What did you think you were creating and, and what you thought, is that where you're headed now? Yeah. So I would definitely say it's a bit of a hybridization. I mean, the core thing when starting Digital X was all about, well, creating the web three fashion economy and putting, you know, the fashion industry in all of the different aspects from the supply side to the buyer tooling side to the community engagement side, putting all of that onto Web3. But of course, that is super high level and very broad and, and really hard for anyone to, to properly understand and relate to. And so ever since then, it's just been executing on essential modules of what would be needed in order for this industry to actually grow. And so we, how we started was very simple. It was the first digital fashion NFT marketplace which was bringing indie fashion designers to be able to create really cool digital fashion garments, sell them as NFTs. That was literally like the first kind of um, setup that we had. And then we started bringing more gaming elements to that. We started really leveraging more on like the composability, which is a key part of Web3, which was um, bringing in like these 
um, smart contracts and mechanisms that allow for designers to mint open source materials, patterns, and textures to an on-chain NFT library. And then other designers can come and, and kind of take their pick of these different patterns, incorporate them in their master garments. And then when they sell that final NFT, there's like a um, split of those like token rewards and allocations between all of the designers that actually were able to contribute amongst that supply chain. So being able to bring in these really cool, transparent, modular, composable components as well that you could never do in traditional fashion. So we kind of were experimenting with all of that. And the best way that I would describe it today is that DataLex is this protocol stack with all of these different modules that then allows any um, designer, you know, individual designer brand label to come in and take these components and then form their own self-sovereign platform and market within the entire industry. So that includes tooling across governance, across capital, across the tech as well. But to be this, you know, self-sovereign Web3 fashion brand and label that can sustain in the market and DigitalX is really the infrastructure underneath that. So every one of these can come in and make use of the, the tech that you're providing, which provides the, the technology for the NFT implementations the wardroom implementations, independent designers coming in and utilizing that platform, but also basically creating their own ecosystem that might have tokens that has governance around it so that a group could create their own guild, their own uh, design team, make use of the overall platform, but be sovereign unto themselves. Yes, exactly. And what I would say is the really important thing there as well, it's not just the technical layer, because although the technical layer is, is super important, I mean, it's what drives a lot of the innovation. If you just have the code without like the, the more social and community side, which is super important within Web3 and coordinating on that, and then also the capital side as well, you're missing key parts of the stack. So we don't only do the technical, we're also, we have, for example, like our global designer network, DAO community, and that is a DAO filled with hundreds of digital and physical fashion designers located all over the world and they're like creating these designer labels, they're creating these realms, but it really at the core is this community where as a designer, you can come in and you could know nothing about Web3, even know nothing really about fashion and start being able to have these like high quality connection, collaboration opportunities to then start making your way in the market, which is, you know, the power of network effects in Web3 as well is that although you're self-sovereign and you're kind of going at it as an individual, you're not alone in the sense that there's all these other nodes that are supporting you and I'm able to, you know, kind of like actually allow you to succeed in the market too. So we're really focused on that side as well. And then also the capital of how do you, you know, actually bring in capital so it can be decentralized, so it can be distributed edge to edge. So brands and that can sustain because again, you know, going back to earlier conversations, money is and value, it's, it's how the world works. And if you can't bring in capital, then, you know, you can't continue. So when you started this though, but you didn't raise VC money or anything for the project, you all just started from scratch and did a fair launch token. Exactly. So we have no VCs, no private backers. The very first sale was a Genesis NFT sale where we sold like governance and Genesis NFTs that have utility within our ecosystem that continues to be progressively unlocked over time. And then we also have our native Mona ERC20 token. So yeah, ever since then, it's, it's literally just been using the native tools and mechanisms that we have in Web3 to go to the market, bring the community to be able to directly coordinate and govern with us. So that's been pretty amazing. So you had a really big vision, but uh, I mean, you're building a, what, what would be seen as a really complex thing that can be utilized in 
a lot of ways. Like I can already in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so all of these tools are just amazing, would be amazing for a lot of DeFi communities and other things that are happening. But who were you convincing at first and help you build this thing? I mean, what, what was that like um, persuading people of this vision and, and getting them on board? And then what's it been like trying to build this whole thing? I mean, th this is a pretty complex undertaking. I mean, it's, it's very complex, you know, it, it's, it is that thing. And we're in the stages of Web3 fashion where, you know, like even six months ago, uh, you know, it's kind of like we're building it as we're like forging more of the base and expanding the base to like right. introduce these new terms and that. So, I mean, look, when we launched last year, the NFT market and that, it was entirely different. You didn't have as much noise as you have now with so many projects and that coming into the space. And so it, it was in some ways great, in some ways, I mean, some ways advantage, some ways a disadvantage. Advantage because when we launched into the market, we were really able to launch into the most authentic NFT community because that's all there was back then. There wasn't all of this other capital coming in. There wasn't all of this media and, and marketing around it. And so I'm really able to build out a, a strong strength of connections and have kind of that, that salience in that and, and that, yeah, strong amplification when we, when we first launched as well. And particularly fashion, that was something entirely new. So it was really exciting for everyone to be like, oh my gosh, you know, an NFT Web3 fashion project. I never heard of that before. And so that was a really strong advantage. In some ways, also a disadvantage because, you know, we, but I'd really say, you know, I view it as, as such a, a strong point because and particularly just the timing was absolutely amazing to go into the market. Then if we were a year earlier, gosh, it would have been so many more challenges and barriers than when we had it to be able to launch and then, you know, have immediate validation of the direct path that we had chosen to go on. So yeah, I, I would really say it's that. And in terms of building, it's absolutely 24 seven. I can tell you, I, I sleep like <laughs> two to three hours a day, sometimes just in my chair. Before I actually came to, to New York and when I was in SF, I literally just slept in my chair for like months and months and months. And, and so then, you know, lying down horizontally became an absolute luxury um, <laughs> that I could experience. So yeah, it's crazy, right? But it's, it's, I absolutely love it. And I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. We're changing you know, the, the way that age old centralized gatekeeping industries have been run to just enable so much in terms of like the economic side in, in terms of the sustainability side, design, creativity side that ha has just been held in these choke points and, and been so extracted for so long. So yes, it's 24 seven, it's fully hands-on. And, and, you know, like you said, even the stuff that we're doing now it won't be what it would look like in two months, three months, six months, because it's always changing. It's always iterating. It's always becoming so much better and so much better in terms of the interface way of how do people start actually interacting with it from a buy side, collecting side, wearing side, metaverse dweller side. So yeah, it's, it's great though. You know, I, I can't complain in that sense. That's a lot of markets to go after all at once. Do you think that when people kind of went along for this ride, that they fully believed that it would get to where it is even today versus where you, you think the vision's going or were they just kind of like, you know what, this just sounds daring enough that I want to do it. And so they just hopped on and jumped in. I say it's a bit of both, but I'd say definitely, you know, it, it probably was a lot like that. You know, it's a completely new thing. And as I said, it's like when we bring terms forth, then it's like they're being defined then and then executed out. So I, I really think it is since the past six months though what we have seen is that one year ago when you talked about the metaverse or web3 fashion or that you could 
very easily be passed off as naive or talking about something very futuristic and high level. And in the past six months, that has completely shifted where now it's no longer a matter of like, if the metaverse is going to happen, if Web3 fashion, it's just a matter of when, accelerated timelines, who's going to get there first? How's it, is it going to be centralized, decentralized, you know, controlled by age old companies, or we're going to have the indie market and really true authentic Web3 and decentralization being, you know, flourishing and enabling kind of like that circulation of capital in that. And so I, I really see it as that, which again, it, it's absolutely amazing. And I, I, I love that. And it's more just a back and forth now between you see these big brands come in and, you know, when that happens, I think two things, number one, great new market activity, new productive capacity, new like kind of uh, concentrated spotlight on, on what this industry is. But the other question I ask, you know, is um, where does the money come from? Where does the money come from, from these old brands? And it's the, the, you know, is it a loan shark propping them up? Are they in debt and in huge liabilities? Who do they have to pay off? Who do they have to appease to? And that's really the stage we're at now. You have these wow. projects coming in and they're minting fashion NFTs, but that's not Web3 fashion. Um, Web3 fashion is the de complete rejection of Web2 decentralization of capital, tech, and governance. And if you're not doing those three things, then frankly, you're leaving value on the table because just like what we saw, you know, which projects and which companies won within the computing age, it's those that really understood the power of network effects within the internet. And, you know, a kind of good stage analogy when you think about what is web one, well, it was personal network effects, web two, centralized hypergrowth network effects. And Web3, it's uncensorable, personalized, hyper-growth network effects. And that is incredible. And when you realize how you can actually leverage value-based network effects, which means removing choke points from every part of, you know, the fabric and medium that you're building in, that's where you create the most value. That's where you have this entire convexity and you get the big wins. And so that's the stage we're at now is, is setting Digitalex up to be a network effect, to enable network effects for designers, for buyers, collectors, wearers, everyone in the market. That's amazing. Um, yeah, look, I don't foresee any large fashion house dissolving into these organic DAOs that you're creating, but you never know. The beauty of it is, is that you actually have designers coming from that world to join you and buying into being a DAO and feeling empowered by it. I mean, the just the, the designers I met in Miami in your booth, I was just blown away. I was blown away by the energy. I was blown away by what they had already created and the, the level that they were taking the technology beyond kind of what I expect walking in. You know, I just expect normal NFTs. What I didn't expect was the level of augmented reality work that was being done and the physical and the virtual fashion. When that first started, was that something that took one designer at a time coming in? Or was it something that it was kind of like, as soon as a couple came, all of a sudden people were like, oh my God, I can do this. I, I don't, sadly, I don't remember the woman's name that was in the booth who, you know, Stella? talked about, yeah, talked about being in the back room of the, of, of the fashion house. And, and it, to me, it was so inspiring to see someone who was kind of like, now I'm in control, right? And they're doing it in a DAO where there's a financial um, path for them that doesn't make them any longer dependent upon what we were just talking about. So what's, I, I mean, there has to have been so heartwarming that experience for you, but also, you know, 
what was that like at the beginning to kind of get it rolling? Yeah, so I, I can tell you, well, back last year when we started, it was like kind of curating the very first designers to like launch these digital fashion NFT auctions. It was literally me just going on Instagram, typing in digital fashion, scrolling through, and then just reaching out to hundreds. And that was a, a massive hustle because also then none of them knew about NFTs. And it was like, you know, I was a scammer in a sense. All oh, this weird, I mean, I didn't even tell them back then. There was only one that knew about crypto because he'd been in the space for a little while, but all the rest, I didn't even mention NFTs. All they said was there's this new technology and it's, it allows you to verify ownership of your digital item. And we're going to be running an, an opening auction to like celebrate it in a sense. To like, just try and keep it, you know, yeah. very like just focused on, on them. And then, but the first switch for them was then after that first auction, which was a huge success, there was like 20 designs and there was over like, I mean, that was when Ethereum was $600 and there was like 25, 30 K brought in, you know, that's just gone absolutely crazy since then. But, and then when they started seeing that and they started seeing like, holy shit, in a sense, we just got more value than we'd ever see from freelancing on Upwork and getting 35%, you know, taking from us our money, taking forever to arrive. We just literally got this Ethereum thing in our wallet in seconds after this major sale of someone really appreciating what I'm doing. And that's what got them like hooked. And then I didn't even really have to explain a lot of the rest. Uh, and that was the first stages. But then, you know, it was really every week in the DAO, we run community calls like of, you know, six to even eight hours a week of community calls. We have so many different collaboration projects and opportunities going on. And now it's become an entire network, which is just growing out for itself. But it really was that it was the first kind of hustle and then the first kind of proving out and having it work and being like, yes, you know, now it's the less convincing. And then it, it just keeps going on like that. And so as I've said, heartwarming, I mean, absolutely completely because the reason why I, I love this as well, and like you experience, you know, in real life in Miami is, is these designers, they're now becoming completely empowered and they don't have to rely on someone else. They don't have to rely on someone else to, to get capital, to build their brand, to, to, you know, tell them that what they're doing is okay. And they're being able to be self-sovereign, but at the same time, they have this entire network of extreme support and collaboration where all these other designers, instead of like in the traditional industry, because it is so zero sum where they have to have fake allegiances and alliances or try and cut each other down, they realize now that actually I don't need to do that because when the person next to me succeeds, I actually succeed tremendously as well. And that's just what's been so incredible. And, and so this is really, you know, when you go to the heart of what is DigitalX doing, it's these tools so they don't even have to rely on DigitalX. They don't have to rely on one marketplace to, you know, simp up to or think about okay, are they going to accept me or the next day, maybe they'll take my things down. Instead, they're going out, they're building their own platforms because that's the power of value-based network effects. You know, you don't want to stop the network effect. You want to have these individual nodes within it that are then being able to coordinate through connected smart contracts, for example, and, and allowing the value to, throw, to flow. So that's just been, I mean, that's been the best part of it for me as well. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, I love the aligned incentives. I love them kind of kicking in and realizing that. I love the fact, the thing I love the most about it is kind of that moment when people realize the freedom something like that brings them because that is probably the most empowering component out of it, like you were saying. And I even say that now for like developers in DeFi, right? The, the fact that it's not in crypto and DeFi and said, well, you know, wh wh why do they suddenly think they can create these things? I said, because they can't. And nobody can stop them. 
And that is why so much amazing innovation is happening, right? Beyond let's just create a lending product. Let's, let's create something that no one ever thought of before. And I can do that because nobody can tell me I can't. I think that's so incredibly similar to kind of what these people are experiencing. The cool thing about it is, is that it's, it's bridging past this little echo chamber we all live in, in DeFi and crypto. And now these, I'm sure every one of these designers is telling their friends and their family about this experience and how empowered they feel and how exciting it is. When I, I, I advise a, a project in the NFT space and they, they create these digital virtual gachapon machines. And there was an artist in the second machine they'd launched and this artist who piecemeal would get $50 or hundred bucks for a design that she did. And she did 20 designs for this machine, varying rarities, whatever. And probably the most this, this designer had ever made, this artist had ever made in, in her career was probably $15,000, $20,000. And in 45 minutes, she made over $80,000 on this machine, right? And so for her, it was scale, power, freedom, money all at once, right? Her life will never go back to you know, piecemeal work. And to me, all of these things are incredibly inspiring. And I, I think it's just amazing. Is I was amazed at the enthusiasm of the people in the booth. It, it must be incredible to be interacting in this every day. As I said, I, I wouldn't trade it. Nice. Congratulations on creating all that. That's awesome. How do you explain what you're doing to grandparents, parents, relatives that aren't in our world? Uh, I mean, look, a lot of it is first of all, showing an amazing, you know, video animation or image of the fashion, because that immediately like sparks so much more interest than like going into, nice. oh, there's this technology like blockchain, which they, you know, something like, ah, I don't, I didn't need to know about that. So that's also what, what's so powerful about this is especially with every designer now coming into web three, they're able to create interfaces for adoption for this entire you know, industry in a sense of web three that can't be done with DeFi because most people don't want to be interacting with like yield farming or staking. They, they just think that it's not for them, right. but with fashion, it, it just touches so many more people. And that's also was one of the big motivations of coming to this space was really the interfaces, like I said, of being able to, to do that, but then empower designers to now go out there and create their own. And so that's really the way I start with it. And it's becoming more and more easier, but yeah, starting from the interface and then, you know, tracing back more around like, you know, examples, like what you were saying, even when you were taking like the students in that on the career day and getting them to kind of run the scenarios of, again, like, where does the money come from? How does the world today actually work? You know, how does ownership really work within our society? Well, it's just threat of violence. Ownership doesn't actually exist before blockchain. There was no real provenance. And so when you start kind of bringing more of these things in and people realize, I mean, then it becomes so much more easier for them to get that actually an NFT, it's not a JPEG. It's not just funneling, you know, a million, $3 million in eight minutes for an auction. It's the power of that provenance, and that mechanism, the record of activity, and then being able to verify that on a transparent, permissionless, as you said, no one can stop you, coordinated ledger system. So yeah, but. You know, there's always better ways that, that coming up with around. I mean, one really good one is what is the difference between web one, web two, and web three? Um, and I use this a lot in Miami, Star Wars. So web one, you have a new hope. Web two, 
Empire Strikes Back, the big corporate tax coming and saying, no, we're going to, you know, control the choke points. And then what is Web3? Well, it's the return of the Jedi. Nice. So, you know, everybody <laughs> in Web3, it's the Jedi. That's awesome. That's amazing. Are, is digital acts, is, I, I don't want, this is, will sound shallow and crass, but it's not how I intend it. So, but is digital acts and NFTs or fashion, is that really the stepping stone for what your bigger vision is as a way to move people into sovereignty, you know, having, being self-sovereign and understanding what's possible? I don't want to use this term, but I'm going to say the words anyway, Trojan horse, because it's not that I don't. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. For you underlying, is that of the bigger vision? I think definitely, you know, and, and that's, and it is that thing. It's, it's, to be honest, I love fashion, but at the end of the day, it's fashion doesn't really matter if it's not decentralized, if it's not empowering the person that's wearing it or that's buying it. And so that's, I guess, the difference with Dirtlex and, and even the Global Design Network. It's always about putting Web3 first, because if you don't put decentralization first, then all of this stuff that we're talking about, it, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, if it's going to be a centralized blockchain, um, or if it's just a, you know, a corporate coming in and minting fashion NFTs, that defeats the, this entire set of power tools that we've literally been handed. And so in that way, it is. It's the interface of that Trojan horse of how do you actually not abstract away decentralization, you can abstract away the tech, but decentralization isn't a back end thing. It is a front end thing that should be at the forefront of everything that we're interacting with. And this is what we see a lot in the market when you have new players coming in and they get kind of that confusion of, oh, we need to kind of abstract away decentralization. And, you know, even you see blockchains like Solana, for example, where literally they're completely VC and centralized control. I mean, it's been outed, like it's had outages for like three days in a row now with just VCs just switching it on and off to like fix certain things. It's like that just <laughs> defeats the entire thing of the unsensible, permissionless nature of what we're talking about here. And in that sense, it is that Trojan horse. If it needs to be in, in, you know, being, how do you ship it to people where they can eat it, they can understand it, they can interface with it, but you're not actually abstracting away the most important parts of why we're all here. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, I don't care if it's fashion, if it's something else, something else, as long as it's Web3 at the driving forefront of it, then, then that's what matters. Yeah, I was hoping that was going to be your answer. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Look, I, I think this is a brilliant approach to it. And I, and I do think abstracting away the tech, but obviously being driven by the decentralization will. The beauty of it is, is that the decentralization actually is a feature. And so many people think it's just an underlying thing that we have and we have the benefit of, but just go make money. You're, you're treating this as an important component of what happens and you're, you're onboarding people into a DAO experience at the very beginning. I'm, I'm, I, I would gather they're seeing that right away that are buying from designers, but they will at some point as they continue to interact with the network, see what's possible there and that they can have a role. In that as well. Do you see right now people that are joining and to be a part of the community that are not designers, people that are doing other things to be a part of this, that are, that are, you know, buying tokens that are investing, but that are also trying to do other things to help you besides being a developer, a UI designer and a designer designer? Definitely. I think that's growing more and more over time as people also are starting to become more interested 
in like the fashion side and how they interact with it. And particularly like the gaming side of things like indie gamers and modders, we focus a lot on that community too, because there's so much value and that tying into and reinforcing the fashion side. A really kind of big part of the community that we're focused on now as well is looking at what are the complements of the industries around fashion. So modeling, makeup artistry, hairstyling, I mean, photography, these things make up the fashion industry. The fashion industry wouldn't exist just with the supply side of like material goods and and meat space, physical fashion. And so we're really focused now on also creating tooling to empower and platforms to empower um, these groups and these individuals. And that's going to be released over kind of the next weeks and so. But it, it definitely is that thing. It's that really the strong communities. I mean, you always have in crypto you know, the different um, layers where you have those that are kind of just buy and sell and and then look at the markets and that. But you also now, and, and particularly what we're seeing with so many more people coming into the space, they're really looking for their tribes, their guilds, their squads. And they're seeing that this is now a community and ecosystem that they can be a part of. And whether that's from the buying, collecting, wearing, production, you know, gaming side and that, there there is that space for them. And it's being, you know, more and more uh, developed and iterated on over time. Are you, as you start talking to people outside of designers, um, are, is that also you're back to kind of like square one of, of saying, you know, you can be empowered here. There's no middleman in here. There's not, you know, I mean, are you going through that same kind of process you had to go through to recruit designers or are the connections you already have helping because you have designers that have already worked with some of these people? Um, yeah, so I would say, that, I mean, there's definitely a lot of that still because of just the stage we're at, but the amazing thing about the Global Designer Network and like the designers that you met is because of the way that we, you know, have really set it up is that when you come in, you learn about Web3. It's not about abstracting that away. And this is what we have, you know, hours of community course every week in the doubt to like reinforce and keep reinforcing these principles. And that's the amazing thing with network effects is, is like literally what you saw at the booth is. I didn't have to open my mouth half the time because yeah. these designers that even just been in the industry for like three months, four months, they get it. And once you get it and then that's it, it's like, I don't have to go and repeat. And they're, you know, they're on the front line, um, explaining it even higher fidelity than I do around like why this is so important. And so that's just the amazing thing and that, that keeps compounding and growing. And then, you know, you imagine just in now a few more months where that like exponentially and, and the staggering scale up of that. As you build this thing, uh, as you build the plane while it's flying, do, are you, are you finding from a technical perspective, you have difficulty kind of going back to the smart contracts you originally created or, or was it kind of designed and architected from the beginning to be able to, to handle the change you knew was coming? Good question. So I would say like the very beginning contracts, there had to be like a lot of refactoring on those. But how we have it now and like kind of some new features, like with Ethereum, as it's been more and more developed over time, you can have upgradable components to the smart contracts, which means it's so much easier now. There's still the full immutability, but it just means in terms of kind of like pointing contracts to each other, uh, when you do need to upgrade, like it's more like a modulized approach. And that's really what we've taken. It just makes the like technical debt it becomes less and less over time, which is, you know, a huge part of all of this is how do you reduce technical debt? How do you keep at the forefront of the engineering and particularly security side, but then also like bringing in the stuff that was developed ages ago, like keeping it caught up. And so Polygon, I mean, we started on Ethereum, but we moved to Polygon in February. And that 
from an engineering point of view of just being able to deploy contracts, um, experiment with different stuff is so much more easier because when you're deploying an Ethereum, you can be paying a couple thousand dollars every time. And then if you stop up something, yeah. exactly. Um, it, it's so much more difficult now. And, and I love Ethereum because it's the most authentic developer engineering decentralized community that there is in Web3. And so the great thing about Polygon at the moment and other layer twos that are forming you have that activity and that direct access still back to the heart of it all. And so that's been really, really beneficial for us is that we can be really iterative, really fast, keep sustainability of like the treasury, even, you know, more of like the um, environmental sense at the minimum. And then at the same time, whenever, you know, when Ethereum 2.0 comes along and it keeps continuing to upgrade and as other layer twos come, come along, sorry, that are compatible, we have that entire kind of ability to like quickly deploy. Are you writing code? for the project? So we have a, a dedicated engineering team, which is nice. four engineers, smart contract and, and sorry, front end um, web three engineering. So I do a bit of it, but I'm not like officially trained in solidity in that. So we have official developer, you know, to make sure, because again, this is so immutable in that, like those fine lines in the contract, it's like, we really want to make sure that the auditing, the unit testing and that it is done correctly. But you know, the great thing about the position that I'm in is I'm able to just continue to gain so much knowledge. And this is the amazing thing is that literally like fashion designers, we've like taught them and now they're teaching each other to interface with like the block explorers and like mint directly, which is nice. like crazy, but it, it's knowledge that nice. you need to be successful as well in this market. It's awesome. That's really cool to hear. That's, that's fantastic. On a, on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is like your, your radically decentralized vision and one is web two. Where would you put your project today in terms of where you want it to be in decentralized? I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I would say that in terms of the mechanisms in place, definitely like a, a seven nice. in terms of actually like the flows going through those mechanisms, we're still at around five or so. And okay. that just comes with like at each stage, continuing the momentum and yeah, like scaling up the network effects. But Having those mechanisms in place makes it so much more easier. So as things scale, it continues to actually decentralize with that. Very cool. I'm going to wrap up. I've taken all your time, but I just, I have two more questions. What, uh, you know, what, what things do you think people should be on the lookout for what you guys are going to be releasing or doing in the next three to six months? Yeah. What's on the horizon? Sure. So I would say the main thing is our designer realms and web three patrons. So we actually just launched this yesterday, but now um, at patrons.digitalx.xyz, it's literally just like a platform that you can go on and you can literally buy into the hearts of these indie Web3 fashion labels as they're launching. And so there's like a, a patron spectrum where you can choose between different NFT tiers and it unlocks different things within that designer realm from like token allocation to um, whitelisted collection access to like virtual world access, like all these crazy things. And you can choose the different tiers and then directly buy into that and also the broader Web3 fashion ecosystem. So that's absolutely crazy because for the first time, nice. you can now buy into the heart of Web3 fashion. And then I'd say over the next three months in that, what we're really focused on, as I said, is bringing in these industry compliments, like the models, the makeup artists, the hairstylists. And we're doing that through running what we're calling Realm Runway events, where these designers are going to be launching their collections, digital and physical, at dedicated IRL and digital runway events. The first one's going to be in New York City and where people can actually get like NFT tickets to then come to these and experience these events and also start uh, supporting and, and patroning and championing the designers as well. So 
that's something that's really exciting. I can't wait to see more about that. I ask everybody this question and I'm not sure how to frame it for you. Usually I frame this as what person, primarily it's usually person, or project are you inspired by or or do you think will have the most impact in the future kind of in the DeFi space? You're playing across all layers. So I, I would probably just phrase it as in, in this world of, of DeFi slash NFTs. Yeah. Most inspiring to you or who do you think is most? So like just one person or I can do a group? No, you can do multiples. You can do yeah. multiples. What I would say is, I mean, it's a really hard question to answer, but one like protocol in a sense that I, I find really interesting in terms of the way that they're dealing with like liquidity and mechanisms around impermanent loss and that is Bancor. I just, I know they have like their V3 release coming up in that, but just some of the stuff that I've been reading on and, and, and you know, quite active in their community as well, pretty cool around, you know, and your, your LPing, which is super important within decentralized exchanges, like how do you incentivize LP providers. And there's often those hidden things where you don't realize like impermanent loss is such a massive, just negative part of doing that and, and the risks associated with that. So I, I really am super interested to see how they continue to innovate on that front. Uh, because even like, for example, getting fashion designers to LP within a pool, being able to have that protection there and that security is something that I see is, is you know, we need yeah. more of. Yeah, that makes total sense. Cool. No, that's obviously a, hard, a rock solid project too. So that's great. Emma Jane, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited about what you're building and the longer term vision for it. I think it's, I think it's one of the few projects that's going to, I, I put a lot of my investment thesis in projects that I think have an opportunity to break into the real world. And it's pretty cool to see one that's actually already bridging that. And to me, that's um, exciting to see. And I think it's a a brilliant long-term vision to kind of introducing the world to uh, decentralization and what's possible. So I'm really excited to see what you do. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. No, thank you so much, Brad. Uh, pleasure to speak with you. You too. Take care.